uh, hopefully you got some good things yourself. Hopefully it was a really uh, refreshing time for you, or at least it was a time you got to uh, think about what a refreshing time would be if you were able to have one. So uh, hopefully it was one or the other. Well, tonight we're going to launch a series on living in the Word, and um, it's going to be over several weeks. And what I want us to do, I want us to look tonight at the importance of the Word of God. And that's how we're going to kind of launch tonight and look at stuff. What I will tell you is this, um, and this is a statement I want you, you guys to think about for a minute. The authority and reliability of the Scriptures has to become a settled issue for you if you are ever going to experience the life that is promised for you in them. If you're ever going to begin to experience the life that the Scriptures talk about you having being in Christ, then the subject of the authority and the reliability of the Scriptures has to be a settled issue in your life. Otherwise, you won't approach them in the right way and you won't learn from them. Anybody know Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen? Somebody like, oh my gosh, I knew they were going to ask that one of these days. I never did learn that verse. Uh, anybody know that verse? Ah, Jerry knows that. What does it say? Yeah. In, in the version that God reads, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, fully prepared for every good work. Now, men and women, what I would submit to you is this. We will fight for 2 Timothy 3.16. And yet the reality is, I'm not sure that many really believe 2 Timothy 3.17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness. People go, yeah, that the man of God may be adequate, fully prepared for every good work. See, a lot of times we don't believe that, and the way we know we don't is this. If we really thought the lessons that's going to teach us and the things we're going to glean from there are going to help us in all areas of our lives to make us adequate, because if you're a guy, and many of you are, one of the things you don't want to be is inadequate. And you think, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be adequate. And one of the things that scares you to death is you're going to be shown for the inadequate person you are. And yet, what the scriptures say is, if you will dig in there, you can learn things that will make you adequate for every area of life. So if we believe that, we'll begin to do something about that. So why do you think people have trouble trusting the Word. Why do they have problems trusting the Word? That's what I'd like us to look at first. And here, here's the very first one. I think the very first reason why is ourselves. Ourselves. Um, we tend to think that we can be selective in picking and choosing what we think is true in Scripture. So a lot of times if you ask somebody, you know, you tell them, uh, say, we focus on something like the gospel, they go, yeah, the gospel. That's true. Boy, I'll tell you what, trust in Christ, that, that is true. And you say, okay, okay. But then we encounter things that we don't necessarily understand, or maybe we understand them. It's not that we don't understand them. It's just we don't want to do them. And we encounter those, and we go, hmm, you know, um, I'm, I'm just not sure how reliable the Bible is right there. And I look at that, and I think, isn't it funny 
Isn't it funny that we're willing to trust God with eternity, and yet we're not sure we can trust him with the next 60 years? Isn't that amusing? Because you look at it and you think, really? If you're not going to trust him that he can, he can equip you for the next 60 years, you're really going to turn the keys to eternity over? Really? And so one of the problems is ourselves. The other problem is we have an enemy, and the scripture refers to him as the father of lies, who wants to keep us in a constant state of doubt. Because if he can keep you in a constant state of doubt, then what you'll do is you will decide, well, I ought to do that. Well, I think I ought to do that. I mean, I'm not sure I ought to do that. I mean, yeah, I, you know, maybe not. Okay, I won't. And that's kind of where you'll end up. And you just don't make progress in knowing God. You don't make progress in, in, in really growing in the areas He wants you to grow in. You just don't make progress. But the reason you don't make progress is you don't have it settled about the authority and reliability of His Word. So you have to do that. Now, how do you decide about trusting the Word of God or not? How, how do you make that decision? How, how do you decide that? Well, everybody's trusting something. Everybody is. It's not like these people have faith and these people don't have faith. No, everybody has faith. It's just what you have faith in. You see, we choose what we trust. Faith in God means this. It means that you have chosen to trust that He exists, that He is who the Bible says that He is, and our trust or lack thereof and, and the obedience that kind of comes from that will radically impact your right here and now as well as your future. That's what it means when we place our trust in Him. Now, to choose against faith, that also requires trust. Because what you're trusting there is you're trusting that God does not exist, that he can't really be known, and that that choice in no way is going to impact your life or your eternity. Both require trust. You know, if you choose the second, you still have to supply answers to questions like, you know, um, the complexity of design that we see all around us. Where did that come from? You still have to supply answers to, like, the meaning of life. You know, what, what's the purpose of life? If you still have to supply so many answers that, that are brought out daily in life, but you have a choice as to, as to whether or not you believe. In choosing where you place your trust, what you have to do is you have to look at the reliability of each option. You have to see which is the most reliable. So how do you do that? If you're trying to decide, how do you decide, you know, like, this one, that one, which way to go, trust God, don't trust God, you know, trust the scriptures. Well, you know, if you're trying to decide about the scriptures, how do you decide? Well, I always go to people that know a lot more than I do, which isn't hard. And so I find many of them. But, you know, I, I, in this case, I would go to Jesus. And I look at Jesus because when you settle who he is, once you decide who he is, you know, if he was just like, you know, some guy who, who thought he was a... Um, he thought he was the son of God, but he really wasn't. He was just kind of whack, you know, if that's who he was. Well, then you can just kind of discount that. Or, you know, if you think, well, he was, um, he was actually a liar. He was just trying to fool people. He was like a charlatan. He was trying to do that. If you come up with that, well, then, you know, discount that. But if you decide, no, 
actually, I think he was exactly who he said he was. If he was who he said he was, then whatever he taught settled the issue. If he was who he said he was, then whatever he taught settled the issue. So how did Jesus look at Scripture? If you look at them, how did Jesus look at Scripture? Well, in one, he thought it was authoritative. In Matthew 5, uh, 17 and 18, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus' view of it, he thought it as, as authoritative. He also saw it as historical in that over and over he quotes things from the Old Testament as having really happened in time and space. So he saw it as historically, he saw it as authoritative. He also saw it as pointing to him. In Luke 24, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus' view, he thought it was authoritative. He thought it was historical. He, he saw the scriptures as pointing to him. Over 14 different books, 14 different books in the Old Testament, he quotes from again and again and again as he's speaking to the people. Now, you may look at that and you may think, well, yeah, Neil, um, but like Jesus had the Old Testament. What about the New Testament, too? I mean, is that like reliable? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Thank you. Um, the New Testament is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in nature. And you know what? That has been proven over and over and over. If you look at the New Testament, the New Testament, as they're writing down the things Jesus said and as they're writing down the different commands that he gave and as they're writing down this history about his life, over and over what you find is that's proven true again and again and again. So we can also thank God, you know, um, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, we can also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And Paul, again, speaking to the Corinthians, says, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise uh, gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So over and over, one of the things you see is these were guys that were eyewitnesses. They were writing down. Other people that lived during that same time, if it wasn't true, boy, they could dispute it right there, but nobody was. In fact, another thing you see that, that adds to the authenticity of, of the New Testament is it's full of details. It's full of details. In fact, one guy... Um, named Frank Turek in a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he lists 84 different details, 84 different details, just in 16 chapters of the book of Acts that, that occur 
that name people and places and details and are confirmed through history and are confirmed through archaeology over and over. But another reason you can trust it, if you look back at sources in, in, in the New Testament, non-Christian sources confirm the same thing. They confirm the most important details that you find in, in Scripture. There are 10 non-Christian non sources who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life that verify every detail of what the New Testament says about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you go, 10? That doesn't seem like a lot. You know what? You're right. 10? I mean, you look at 10, you think, wow. By contrast, there's nine that mentioned the Roman emperor Tiberius. And he was kind of a big deal. Nine. If you look at Christian sources tied in, there's like 10 that mention Tiberius, but there's 43 that mention all the things about Jesus. So there's, there's a reason that those guys wrote those details in. There's a reason that the non-Christians wrote that. They had nothing to gain from it by writing it. Their only reason they wrote it was because it was true. They were verifiable facts that people lived with every single day. So how does trusting the Word of God make a difference in your life? How does trusting the reliability and authority, how does that make a difference in your life? Well, Jesus said trusting and acting upon His Word makes a big difference in your life, a big difference. Um, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, He says this, Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So Jesus, as he's talking about it, he says, you know what? There again, you got choices. You, you can believe it and obey it, and you'll be compared to a wise man. He said, you're, you'll actually have a life that lasts. You'll have a life that's, that's stable on a strong foundation. He said, then again, you can choose to not trust it and not obey it. He said, you'll be compared to a foolish person who built their house on the sand. And when the storms of life hit against you, he said, you will just fold up and be gone. Well, Jesus's half-brother who, by the way, can you imagine growing up, you know, and your brother goes, I'm God. And you're going, right, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, and yet, now, I mean, this right here ought to be one for us. I mean, James, his own brother, who grew up with him, his half-brother, James follows Jesus and begins to follow Jesus. And he has this to say in James 1, 22 through 25. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
James says, in order to glean what you should from the Word, you have to do it. And what, what he's saying there, it's not just a mental process, it's a life process. You have to take it, you have to put it into practice in your life. He also uses the illustration of a mirror. Now, what a mirror does, a mirror exposes the truth about you. You know, you ever wake up in the morning and you're thinking, it's early. Uh, and you don't, you're not one of those people that, bing, you know, morning. No, you kind of evolve, you know, and, and so you're just kind of laying there. And <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Uh, you're kind of laying there, and as you are, you're thinking to yourself, I could probably sleep a little while longer. I'll bet you I don't look that bad. I'll bet you, you know, I kind of stayed in the same position. Hair probably looks okay. You know, um, yeah, I was going to brush my teeth. Um, I did the other day. Uh, so I, I'm probably okay. You know, not, not feeling... Uh, not feeling too scraggly. I, yeah, you know what? Um, yeah. And then you walk in and you look in the mirror. You're like, ah! You know, and you're like, what in the world? And you look at that person. Why? Because the mirror reveals truth about you. And that's why James uses the illustration of a mirror because you know what? That's exactly what God's Word does as you get into it. It reveals truth about you. See, a mirror exposes truth, but you aren't changed just by looking in the mirror, are you? Anybody ever get up and go in there and stand in front of the mirror and go, okay, go to class? No, no. You look in the mirror and you see what needs to be worked on, and then you begin to address it. It's the same thing with the mirror of God's Word. You look in there, you see what needs to be addressed, and you begin to work on it. Now, a mirror is a place of action. You know, back in, um, what was it? Spring, in the spring of uh, 1992, L.A. had something called the L.A. Riots, which was not really a riot. Uh, it like riot as far as fun. It wasn't. Uh, there are all these people, and parents got worried and stuff. So like 11 students came over and decided to uh, stay at our house for a while during that week. Um, and so they're kind of camped out in our house, and the the numbers were about even. I think I think there were like six girls and five guys or something like that. The numbers were about even. The mirror time was not. The guys would be like, are they out yet? No. Aren't there more than one restroom? There's three. How many are open? None. And they're like, oh. And, you know, the guys just were sitting. Now, why, why is that? You know, well, I mean, for girls, a mirror is a point of action. Have you noticed the difference in how adults and children view mirrors? Have you noticed that? See, our kids growing up, um, you know, when they were little, one of their favorite foods, like Samuel, one of his favorite, he's our youngest, and uh, when he was a lad, he's now a lad, but, you know, when he was a lad, um, he, his favorite food was spaghetti. And, boy, I mean, he would eat it and he would kind of wear it. Uh, and he would kind of get this stuff and like, I'd look at him sometimes, I'd say, Samuel, you kind of, you know, what? Like all around your face. You know, he'd be like. So then he'd go in, he'd look in the mirror, and he'd go, cool. And he'd look, he'd look looks like a beard. And I mean, yeah, yeah, looks kind of like a beard, doesn't it? You know, he'd go, yeah. 
You think that was so cool, you want to wipe it off. You know, what? Yeah, wipe the beard off, get it cleared off. Now, on the other hand, Melinda, she would eat spaghetti with us too, you know. But if I said to Melinda, you know, Melinda, you kind of, uh, she didn't go, really? <laughs> cool. Uh, you know, no, I mean, for her, mirror comes up, <laughs> mirror closed, you know, we move on. Why? For Melinda, a mirror is a point of action. For Samuel, it's a point of entertainment. One of the things you can figure out about how you approach the mirror of God's word is this. You want to check your maturity? Is the mirror of God's word a point of entertainment? Like you look at, oh, wow, that, that is the coolest verse ever. Oh, I love it. I'm going to have that stitched and put on my wall. I love that verse. Is it just a point of entertainment? Or when you look into the word of God, do you say, good night. God, I need to work on that. Would you help me to work on that and make it a point of action and begin to deal with it? So you have to look at that. But James goes on. He doesn't just let us off there. He goes, the one who looks intently, in other words, to really fix something, it takes more than a quick glance. Now, I don't know about many of these girls <coughs> because, quite frankly, I don't live with many of these girls. But I'll tell you what, I do live with some girls. And I'll tell you, they have these mirrors. I don't know if you've seen them, but, like, they magnify things. They're kind of scary. They magnify things, and they have lights around them. <coughs> so you can go in, and you can just leave the lights off and turn this thing on and work. You know, I mean, but, I mean... It'll say things like, you look at, I looked in that thing one day, and suddenly my nose was this big. And I know my nose is only this big. So I thought, you know, that's crazy. I mean, it's just, it magnifies everything. I think that's why girls look better than guys do. They have those mirrors like that. You know, it really works. But what you have to do, you have to choose <coughs> not just to glance. This isn't like when you're passing by a car and you kind of look at it and you're like, and you, no, that's not what he's talking about. You don't do that with God's word. What you do is you look intently. And he says, you look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. See, what God's word does is it frees you up. It shows you what is true about you so that you can deal with it, so you can begin to make progress and leave the shackles behind and really step in to what God has for you. And then he says, and continues in it. How often do you look in a mirror? You know, once a week? No. I mean, damage happens regularly. So what you need is, you know, regular times looking in a mirror. That's the same thing with God's Word. You want to get into God's Word on a regular basis so that God can speak to you from His Word so He can begin to show you things. And then lastly, James says this. He says, not forgetting, but doing it, but doing it. When you see something in the mirror, how do you handle that? Do you look and see something and go, oh, my gosh, got stuff all over my face. I'm putting that down for next Tuesday. No. You think, I'm dealing with it right now. You need to approach things from God's word like that. You need to say, you know what? I'm not going to put that in my calendar to work on sometime next month, I'm going to begin to address that right now. 
So you begin to look at that. So how do you begin to get the Word of God into your life? If you're convinced, you know what, I think the Word of God is reliable, I think it's authoritative, but how do I begin to get it into my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to be looking at that for the next five weeks. That's what we're going to be looking at, how you begin to do that. When you understand that God's Word is the only way that you're going to really get to know Him, and it's the basis for our belief, and it's the basis for our authority, then you begin to look for ways to get it into your life. And so, to live in the Word, there are at least five methods that will really help you to do that. Now, Papa Romano was pointing some of those out for us, and I hope you were able to pick them up. We'll go over them right here. This is a little illustration that will help you to see this. This was an illustration produced years ago by a, a guy named Dawson Trotman. And he talks about hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. All of those things will help you to get a grip on the Word of God. Now, if you can you imagine if you walked up right here and somebody said something about, you know, getting a grip on the Word and you thought, okay. I got it. Now, how would that work very well? But you know what? Maybe, you know, you think, okay, no, I'm going to really, do it. I've got it. But, you know, probably not. But if you really get hold of it with all of it, you know, people try to pull it. I mean, they can't do that. Why? You've got a grip on the Word of God. And this is how you do it. You know, the different ways. Hearing, hearing provides insight. It kind of stimulates hunger about the Word of God as you begin to hear it. Reading when you begin to read the Word of God, you kind of begin to get the bigger picture. You get like a kind of a panoramic view or like one of the views from John's drone over Scripture. You know, you kind of see what's going on there. Studying begins to help you discover God's will and His ways. And so as you study Scripture, it helps you there. Memorizing makes His Word readily available and it allows you to begin to think in a biblical way. You can kind of rewire your mind, kind of retrain your mind. Meditating allows you to really grasp the promises of God and begin to figure out, okay, what do you do with those? So we're going to be talking about all of those, not um, um, each week. We're going to talk about a different one. And so we'll start that next week. Um, now, we started tonight talking about authority and reliability of the Scriptures how that needs to be a settled issue for you if you're going to grow and ever experience the life that God promises for you in Scripture. So what will our lives ultimately look like if, in fact, we trust that and we step into what God has and we begin to live in and under His Word? If we do that, what can we expect out of that? What, what kind of a life can we expect out of that? What, what can we expect to be true within our lives? Well, to give us a picture of that, what I'd like to do is I would like to share with you one of the very first passages that I ever memorized years ago. But before doing that, let me just tell you, when, when I was in college, I read this biography of this guy named Dawson Trotman, and he, um, he had a habit when he was staying with other guys, whether they were on a retreat or, you know, whether maybe they were at some uh, meeting or whatever. He had this habit. He would say, at the end of the night, he'd say, H.W.L.W. Um, and what that really mean was, meant was this. 
His word, last word. And what would happen is this. Somebody would quote a verse, and then the guys would just let the truth of that verse linger in their minds as they drifted off to sleep. So tonight, I'd like us to practice a little HWLW, and what I'd like to do as we wrap up is this. I would like for you to just close your eyes and listen to this verse, because what this verse will tell you is not only what will happen to the person that trusts the reliability and authority of Scripture and begins to live out of it, but it'll also tell you what happens to the one who doesn't. So take, take a minute and um, close your eyes there. You don't have to write anything else down. And we're going to listen to Psalm 1. Close your eyes and listen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish.